0: study of hermeneutics. And uh, just wanted to start off this week. We're going to introduce the last week we looked at a historical overview of hermeneutics and how hermeneutics has developed throughout church history and why that's important. Today we're going to look at the method that we use to interpret scripture and why that's important. Um, And my goal today is hopefully not to Make it seem hopeless that you can't understand the Bible unless you're a biblical scholar because that's not by any means the case. Um, but there are some challenges and we're going to look at those. My goal today is just to whet your appetite to dig into God's Word and um, know that it does take study to be faithful and um, and as as stewards of God's Word we're called to be faithful and so hopefully that's that's what we'll come away from today with Um how many of y'all in elementary school played this game? I don't even remember the purpose of it, but um, you just distinctly remember like in second grade. It was fun for me. Um, so the teacher would have all the students sit around a big circle and she would tell, whisper one story, brief story to one student and then pass it around the room. Y'all remember playing that? I, don't, I Again, I don't remember the point of that, but it illustrates what we're going to get into today very well. Um, apart from students like me who intentionally changed the story, um, <laughs> um, the story was always different. Even if you took the students who intentionally changed it out of the equation, the story always gets around and it's different than what was originally told. And that's just an illustration that sometimes interpreting or understanding language, because that's really what we're talking about. How do we understand the Bible? Language is sometimes hard to understand, um, and sometimes we think we understand language and we really don't, and I'm sure you husbands know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, there, there's a lot of times that you know I think Jen and I just completely understand each other and come to find out we're totally different. Um, so um, there are definitely some challenges. I came across some humorous examples of, of this. Well, let me tell you about one that happened to me. Um, When I was in college, um, I went on an extended mission trip to Australia. And one of the things we did, we arrived on a Saturday. I went through the BSM at the college that I attended, and um, they, they pair you up with another student. And so you're working with another student in whatever city they send you to. So they sent like eight people to Australia, then they sent you off into pairs to different places. Well, we arrived at the city that we were going to be working in, the church we were going to be working in on a Saturday night. Um, no, actually it was a Sunday afternoon. Sunday night they had church, and the pastor was introducing um, the girl that I was working with. Her name was Deborah. She was a DBU student. And um, and so we were working there. The pastor was introducing us to the church, and he asked me if I would do the introduction for both of us. And I said, sure. So um, I get up, and, you know, in Australia they speak English. Um But they don't speak American English, which I quickly found out. So I'm in front of the church, and I'm introducing myself, telling them, you know, basically who I was. And then I said, and this is my partner, Deborah. And I started telling them about Deborah. Well, whenever I said that, there was this look of bewilderment that just about fell on every face in the church. And the pastor quickly corrected what I said, because in Australia, partner is someone that you live with, that you're not married to, um, and so what I just told the congregation was that Deborah and I were living together but not married. Um, so, um, so, there are some other funny ones. Companies all often face this problem when they, when they change their, when they try to um, put their slogans into different cultures. Um, a, a couple of funny ones that I found. Uh, by the way, this is called language gaps, and it's where language and When you're translating one language to another, there's always gaps. Um, Pepsi tried to translate its slogan, and its slogan was, Pepsi brings you back to life into Chinese. And it read, literally, Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave. (laughs) So I'm sure that was a big seller. Uh, Maybe not. Uh, And then Coors uh, had its slogan, Turn It Loose. This was my favorite um, into Spanish, where it was read, suffer from diarrhea. <laughs> so, that probably didn't help out their cause too much. <laughs> um, so, when we go down to Mexico, we're told not to drink the water, they're told not to drink Coors. Um, uh, I found another funny one, a car rental firm in Tokyo published a brochure in English to help English drivers, when they go to Tokyo and rent a car, What to help them know what to do when they encounter various things. Well. One of the things they needed to know how to handle um, a pedestrian who gets in the street. So this is what the brochure said. When a passenger afoot, heave in sight, tootle the horn. Trumpet him melodiously at first. But if he still obstacles your passage, tootle him with vigor. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so how do we handle the reading these reading gra- gaps? And, and we have gaps. Whenever you read, you don't realize this because you have this is just something you've been taught to do all your life, or not taught, but it's something you instinctively do when you read something. Most of us can read something, and there are gaps in the text. There are words we don't exactly know what the author means by. Um, and so, what we do is we we have a strategy for that. We supply words. So I've put up on the board which blank wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Hopefully, I've all looked at that and thought, well. What goes in the blank? What word goes in the blank? Author. Everybody? There's a lot of things we could have put in that blank. Man. Yeah. Pastor. Yeah? So, yeah, there's a lot of things we could have put there, but because we have these reading strategies that we automatically fill in the gaps when we're reading, um, we knew because of our culture, and we're in the same culture, we would put author there. this is not true, however, when you go cross-cultural. Um, and then when, we're, when we study the Bible, we not only have the problem of cross-cultural, we have a huge historical gap. So it's not only a different culture today, a contemporary culture, but it's a, it's a huge historical distance. And so how do we handle these gaps? Now, sometimes we don't even realize we have the gaps, um, and we just read right through stuff. And sometimes we realize we have the gaps and we don't really know what to do with them. Um, So, we're going to look at some tools for that today. Um, So, first off, on your notes, we're going to start with some ground rules. Two ground rules that I think are important. Um, There's, uh, and the other thing is, I could spend probably, or maybe not I, but someone who really knows their stuff on hermeneutics, could probably spend six weeks just on explaining this method. This is just an overview, and and I'm just hitting the highlights. So keep that in mind. Two, some ground rules. And there's many other rules we could throw down, but these are probably two that that are most important. Um, We need to realize that revelation is progressive. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to do what with the law abolish but I came to fulfill the law so um, the idea of progressive revelation he's fulfilling something Um, in in Galatians Paul talks of the law as a tutor so it was something you were elementary things were in the Old Testament now they're fulfilled in the New Testament and if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 1 The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And so in the old days God spoke in various ways um, through the prophets. Now we have the final revelation and it's it's through his son or in what we have today as the Bible. Um, So. So you sometimes why this is important is because sometimes we, we, don't, we interpret things and we don't look at it as this is progressive. And what, what are the implications of that? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, monogamy was acceptable, maybe not acceptable, but practiced in the Old Testament where revelation was not full. Um, wait, did I say monogamy? I meant polygamy, sorry. Sorry. Uh, and you're like, and the problem with that is? Uh, polygamy, was, <laughs> polygamy was practiced in the Old Testament um, where Revelation was not full. Monogamy is clearly the teaching of the New Testament. So that's an example of progressive uh, revelation. We wouldn't go back to the examples in the Old Testament there and say, see, here's a foundation or here's, a, here's the idea of, of polygamy and why we should practice polygamy today. Um, revelation is progressive. The second, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. The the idea behind this is um, that all of Scripture is written essentially by God. God uses people to write it, but it's essentially written by God, and it's God's message to mankind. And if that's true, then there's a cohesiveness to it. We can have the idea of a systematic theology Because scripture interprets scripture. There's one author, there's one message. There are, think of it in musical terms, there are different parts being sung, but it's harmonious. Is that right? Um, I'm not very musical, so uh, I had to have help on this. Um, So, scripture interprets scripture. Scripture's also progressive, that was the first one. So, let's get into how do we close the reading gaps. The gaps that we all have whenever we read something, how do we close those gaps? Um, And the way we do this is through the method, the grammatical historical method. And that is your first point, I believe. Yeah, let me give you that blank. The grammatical historical method is the attempt to faithfully interpret the message of Scripture. And it does so, I've left you a little bit of room to write down some, some thoughts here. It does so in a couple of different ways. Um, remember, we talked about last week the predominant hermeneutical method of the Middle Ages was what? Does anybody remember? Allegory. Yeah, an allegory was a, was a fourfold method of interpreting Scripture, and so you could have you didn't look at necessarily. There was a literal meaning or a plain meaning, um, but then but that was just where you began. Well, the historical grammatical method that's the meaning. That's where you begin, and that's where you stop. Anything beyond that, you're reading into the text. You're not reading. You're not getting your meaning out of the text. Um, so think of this in terms of what we looked at last week with the allegorical method. So, as its name suggests, it looks at several different things. The grammatical aspect basically means is looking at the language and everything that has to do with language. It's grammar. Um, how people use language in certain situations. I mean, because right, words—we um, tend to think of words as having a definite meaning, but they don't. Words has a words typically have a range of meanings, and we supply the meaning based on the context of what we're reading. Um, and so, when you study the Bible, according to the grammatical-historical method, you not only look at the language itself, but you're looking how the language is used. How, what does Paul mean by what was the example Dan used this morning? Um, he gave a lot of different examples. Oh, he defined um, oh, what was it? Um, the word we get for um, hyperbole. Does anybody remember? It wasn't patience. He that was there was a, it was it patience? No, long suffering is. Yeah, there was what? What was the word translated? Yeah, excellence. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's going beyond. I will show you a more excellent way. Yes, thank you. I will show you a more excellent way. We have to look at the language to understand what Paul's doing. And Dan does that every Sunday. I don't think you, I don't know if y'all notice this, but every Sunday Dan does that. He is taking you to the language. Um, so it looks at the language. It also looks at the historical setting because every we not only look to the immediate context in the actual whatever is written, the text, but we also look at the historical context because that determines meaning in language too. Um, so So that's kind of an overview. Now we're going to get into the details. What is the goal of interpretation? The goal is not to find, um, this is not your blank, so don't write yet. The goal is not to find some hidden meaning in the text. The goal simply is, according to the historical grammatical method, is basically to discover, let me find my notes here so I get you, yeah, the original meaning or intent of the text. The original meaning sometimes referred to as, as authorial intent. Um, Martin Luther writes, wrote that the best teacher is the one who does not bring his meaning into the Scripture, but gets his meaning from the Scripture. Um, and, and the problem is, is that sometimes we don't realize that there's a huge historical divide between us and Scripture. And sometimes we don't realize that we bring our cultural baggage with us when we come to the text. Um, Hopefully that's one of the things we'll realize today. And It's helpful if we look at it like this. We all, regardless of who you are, regardless of how much you hate your culture, you've all been trained to wear cultural lens through which you interpret everything. So we talked about last week modern, the modern interpretation system of the reader response theory where we talked about that there's no meaning in the text. This is where we are today when we interpret text. If you go take classes at a college in English, um, most of it is reader response because the idea is there's no meaning in the text because there's no way you can get to that culture. These glasses are impossible to take off. You cannot take your cultural lens off. There's no way. And even if you could, you couldn't put on the cultural lens of the, re- of the text you're reading, the author of the text you're reading. And so the idea is, and there is an element of truth to that, but it's not true. You can take off your lens, but it takes a little bit of effort. You can't just come to a text and just assume that you see it totally like the person who wrote it or the original audience sees it. So this is our uh, our main obstacle is how do we Take off our cultural lens and put on the cultural lens of the writers and recipients of the the biblical texts. Um, and so, how do we do that? Um, we all have these cultural biases. Or you think of them as presuppositions, assumptions that we have. We carry with us to the text. Um, so, how do we how do we um, trumpet that vigorously, or tootle it with vigor, as whatever the case may be. <laughs> Um, I think I need to tootle it with vigor. Uh, but so, how do we do that? Um, some common gaps. Uh, we're going to we're going to look at some of the m- most common gaps that are recognized. These are things. Uh, think of these as obstacles in your way of understanding the Bible, and let's get rid of them. the 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 thing that's wrong about reader response is they claim you can't take the glasses off. Therefore, you're reading into the text purely, meanings in the reader. That's not true. We do need to realize, and this all happened this all happened in the 19th, 20th century when you started having people studying different cultures, linguistics, and what they saw was, wow, I mean, you can go to another culture. Like, I can go to Australia and totally say something I think is fine, and it horrifies everyone that hears me. Um, How is that possible? Well, it's because I'm, we both have on glasses. I have on my cultural glasses, they have on theirs. There were a bunch of instances like that where I said stuff or there were things that somebody said that you didn't re- quite understand even though they were speaking English. So, But we can take them off. That's the, that's the problem with reader response. They assume that you cannot take off the glasses and if you could, you couldn't put on the others. Well, it is possible. We just need to realize that it, it takes a little bit of work. And this, this is where we have to work. Um, number one, there's a language gap. The faithful interpreter is a student of the language. Um, now, fortunately for most of us, <laughs> we have translations. Um, but something we have to keep in mind is that if you're reading an English translation, they are doing part of your translating for you, you're interpreting for you. Um and there was a text this morning. Brent read First Peter four. Who who in here has the New American Standard? Nathan, would you mind reading First Peter four, um, just just verse seven? He read one through seven. But this is an example um, when Brent read this because I'm reading in the ESV. When Brent read this, I thought, wow, that's a slightly different meaning. What's happened is the translators have done some interpreting for us. Anytime you translate, you're interpreting. So, would you mind reading that? verse, uh, Chapter 4, verse 7? Okay. So, it says be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The ESV says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers there's a slightly different meaning there which one's true the esv translators decided to translate it for the sake of your prayers the uh, new american standard translators for the purpose of prayer slightly different meaning um which one's right well we as biblical students need to dig into that what is the greek word that's used here and why do they choose to translate it by the way this is why i would i would admonish you to use more than one translation. Um, don't just read out of one translation. Um, I have my favorites. I, I like the SV. I like the New American Standard, too. Um, but get more than one translation, good translations, because you need to understand they are interpreting for you. Um, so the language is, is one, the first gap. But even if you're reading an English translation, you need to realize that words have shades of meaning. A word in one context can mean something different than a word in a, in a different context, and we need to take, keep that in mind. You can't just assume because it's used this way in this passage, it's used exactly that same way in another passage. Um, one um, modern or considered the father of linguistics is a guy by the name of Sasura, Or Sassour. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Um, he he likened this idea of, of words having a variance of shades of different meanings to a chess game. And he said, there's two ways to look at every piece on a chess board in the middle of a game. I'll drink in just a minute. Um, you can look at the, the king has a different meaning on one chess game depending on where the pieces are than it does on a different, depending on where it's located. Y'all follow that? Um, it doesn't really matter how the, Pieces on the board got to where they are, it's where they are that matters. So words, they have an etymology or how they came to have the meaning they have. That's not always important. Breaking words down, I'm going against the grain here, is not always the most important thing to look at. Um, What you want to look at is how the words are used in this setting. At the moment, it's used in the cultural historical setting. That's what we're looking at. Um, you can look at the word butterfly, for example. We could break that down; it doesn't help us out at all. Butterfly. I understand it now. Um, sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes etymologies are helpful, but that's not the crucial thing. It, sometimes it doesn't matter how the how all the pieces got to where they are. It's where they are at that moment. And that's that, and so when, we, when we're reading text, we need to learn to see what is the context around it. What is the historical, social, cultural, whatever, and the textual context. Um, a- another example of this is the word works. Both Paul and James use the word, the, the word works, or what we translate as the word works, in a slightly different sense. They both mean... Similar things, but it's slightly different for Paul. Works is something we do based on the law to earn God's favor. So for Paul, we are justified by faith, not by works. James, we are justified by works. Because works for James are things that flow out of faith, produced by faith, not in an effort to earn God's favor. So that's why you can have a seemingly contradictory statement from Paul and James, which, by the way, is why Luther didn't think James should be in the Bible. Um, but Paul uses that word slightly differently than James uses it. Um, so, just things that you need to keep in mind: the context dictates the meaning of the word. Um, okay. Some other problems that we have. Oh, yeah. Let me go back. Back. Backtrack. <clears throat> You put down next to words, grammar. Grammar matters. In English, we have what's called syntax, and basically all that means is a fancy word for word order. And word order determines meaning in English. In the Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but from my limited knowledge of it, it's not so much based on the word order, but on the endings of the words. And so what you have is a kind of a, a different way of looking at in other words, in, in English you look, you have subject, verb, object, and so that is the meaning. You look you can have two different nouns in the sentence and you determine which one's a subject more likely based on where it's located in relation to the verb. In Greek you don't. You look at the endings on the words. Um, so we need to be students of, of grammar. Another example is pronouns. I was um, I had some seminary training and I had Greek. Um, but still I don't claim to know Greek. Uh, in my second year of Greek, they had us translating this passage, and it's one we're all familiar with. In fact, when I read it, it was one I memorized. This is, here's another thing. I'm sorry, I'm chasing all kinds of rabbits this morning. and I can't find, I can't talk and look for a book in the Bible. Um, I, there's a problem with, with memorization programs that have you memorize one verse, and they give you a topic and an application sort of for it. Um, And so you memorize this verse out of context a lot of times, not all the times. So it's important when we memorize. That's one of the reasons I love the way their church is doing Scripture memory now, because we're getting an extended passage. We're getting the context for it. So you're memorizing this passage in context instead of just memorizing a part of a verse or a verse. Because there's a danger in, in taking that if you don't know the context and just memorizing one verse and applying it in a way because you're meditating on it and you're thinking of different ways to apply it to your life, which is great, but you may be applying it in a way that, that's not consistent with the context. So um, i years and years ago I'd use this memorization program and one of the verses that we memorized, that I memorized was um first Corinthians three sixteen which says, do you not know that, you're, um, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And it was applied, the best in my memory, what I remember that verse, whenever I hear that verse because of this card, I think of um, what we do personally in terms of self-control, right? Um, the problem with that, there's many problems with that. In context, that's not at all what that verse is talking about. That verse is talking about disunity in the body. So anyway, in my Greek class, we had to translate this, and we had to take, you're just looking at the Greek, so we're looking at the pronouns, you translate it literally. Well, in English, there's a problem with the pronoun you. What's the problem? It can be singular or plural. You don't know. You can know from context, but you don't know from the word. In Greek, you know from the word. And this is plural. You, church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not you, personally, are the temple (laughs) of the Holy Spirit. And so you shouldn't eat too much. You shouldn't smoke. Those are things you shouldn't do. But, I mean, let's not use this verse for that. I mean, there are good reasons we shouldn't smoke and overeat. But, I mean, let's not use this out of context to prove that point. But So that's... um, so we're we should be students of the language. How does this fit in? How does this? How do we interpret this according to language? Um, then the other thing we need to keep in mind when it comes to language is that authors often use figures of speech, and um, many of interpreters have gotten in, in trouble um, because they don't take this into consideration. Dan used hyperbole, uh, or gave the example of hyperbole this morning. Hyperbole is an example of over-exaggerating something to make a point, um, to throw past or go past, whatever. I can't remember exactly how you defined it. But basically, it's a figure of speech that you say something in an exaggerated way to make a point. Um, that My wife's very good at this. Um, sometimes. Not all the time, because that would be hyperbole. <laughs> you are hyperbole. Well, I saw so I tell her she's a hyperbole waiting to happen. Um <laughs> Um, because, uh, but so when okay, turn to Luke because we have. Let me get out of. Let me get out of that one. <laughs> oh, I should give you the chapter verse fourteen. There I go talking and can't find. It. Okay, um, did I say verse? I meant chapter fourteen. Luke fourteen, verse twenty six. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is using hyperbole. In other words, what he's saying is, you don't come to me and then the requirement of coming to me is that you hate your family. Um, What he's saying is, your love for me should make it look like you hate your family. Should be that that you should love me so much that it, by comparison, it looks like almost a hatred for your family. He's not literally telling you that you have to hate your family. He's using hyperbole. Um, yeah, um, yeah, and I mean we do the same thing too. I mean. We we when someone says when someone uses hyperbole and we know it's hyperbole most of the times, <laughs> um, but yeah I do think I do think in the cultural setting you know you would have that that expectation, and then also metaphor is another one. Um, Jesus says I am the door. He's not literally saying he's a door. He's speaking a metaphor. Another one that we've had a lot of division in the church over. This is my body. Metaphor. Or literal. Metaphor. Uh, Just so you know. (laughs) Okay, the second gap that we have to overcome is cultural. Faithful interpreter is a student of the cultural background of the Bible. Statements have meaning, not just in context of the text that it's written, but it also has meaning within a given historical setting. So I'm going to give you a phrase, you tell me what it means. Give me liberty or give me death. What does that mean? Does anybody know the historical setting or context for that? What is it? Who said yes? Patrick Henry and what what is the context that's okay i don't you know. yeah what what was happening in history though what was in american history Right. So so basically, you have an oppressive king. This is during the American Revolution, which is pertinent for this weekend. Um, So you have an oppressive king, and Patrick Henry is trying to convince the people not to go to war. To go to war. Give me liberty or give me death. In other words, freedom is worth dying for. Because sometimes slavery or in a living under an oppressive an oppressive situation is worse, worse than death itself. Would that statement have a different meaning if it were someone on death row? Or someone in prison? Completely different meaning. Same statement. It changes because of the context. So we need to be students of the cultural setting that um, that the books of the Bible take place. Um, <clears throat> whenever people write, they write out of their cultural backdrop. They write using their cultural lenses, and so we need to be students of that culture. Uh, and this is true of any text, um, but we're applying it to the Bible. Um, part of the culture includes geography. Um, let me... My notes. Yeah, geography and the biblical culture. So geography, um, <clears throat> this was really brought home to me <coughs> this past January when a very familiar passage was explained to me according to the geography, and it like totally changed the text for me. And y'all turn because y'all need to just look at this. Joshua 24, chapter 15. Does anybody know what that says? I'm sure y'all do because it's a very, very famous Pass or verse does anybody know somebody knows just say it yeah yeah Joshua says as for me and my house we will serve the Lord um, I'm not going to ask you if you know the context of that um, everybody knows that verse you walk into homes it's on plaques um, what's the context a um, couple of things because this is really cool um, go back. I'm going to give you some of the historical context, but also the geographical context, which to me just made it mean so much more. Um, this is this is not from me. This is from a guy named Joshua Harris. He's a professor out at the Master Seminary. Um, he explained this, and it just made so much sense. It made it make so much more sense. Turn back to Deuteronomy because you have to get the context. For what was going on when Joshua said, "As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." And yes, the context goes back to Deuteronomy, um, ch- chapter twenty-seven. We'll start basically in, well. So Moses is basic. Uh, Moses calls the elders of Israel. And he commands the people, and he basically tells them, keep the commandments, this is in verse 1, keep the whole commandment that I command you today, and on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster, and you shall write on them the words of this law when you cross over and enter the land. Okay, now flip over to verse 11. That day, Moses charged the people, saying, when you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall... St- these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Then he divides Israel, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin go to Mount Gerizim to bless the people. These shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to the men of Israel with a loud voice, curse it, and he goes through to give them the cursings and the blessings so we have two mountains, and I'm going to take this over here so I don't misspell. So when they cross over into the Promised Land, you have two mountains. They're pretty close. Sorry, my mountains aren't real great. I'm messing up my cultural lens over here. Okay, so you have Mount Ebal, and Garrett in. Okay. So, um, Moses says when you cross over, you were to set up a monument, basically. Does he tell them where to do that? He does. I don't think we read it, though. He tells them to set up this monument on Mount Ebal. And these this, they are put these stones, they're not to be cut, and they're to write, we find out, the commandments. So, let's just say law. So, when they cross over the Jordan... To set up on Mount Ebal. By the way, there's about a mile difference or mile separation from the mountains. They're pretty close together. Okay, now turn Joshua 8. So, all this is context for that one verse. Okay, uh, we'll start in verse 30. Joshua renews the covenant. And this would be what he's what it's referring to. You'll see the connection. At the time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, mount where? Ebal. Just Moses, the servant of the Lord had Israel having technical difficulties as it was written in the book of the law of Moses an altar of uncut stones upon which no man was to wield an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the Law of Moses, which he had written them. And all Israel sojourned as well as native-born with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half in front of Mount Ebal. So you have half the people here, half the people here. I didn't put this the first time. This is important. Ebal is the mount of what? Cursing or blessing. Cursing. Mount blessing. Okay, so with the law, there are blessings, there are cursings. Um, so, half of them over here, half of them over here, renews the covenant, basically keep these. The implication is there are blessings if you obey, there are cursings if you disobey. Okay, now we get to Joshua 24. Joshua gathered... All the tribes is verse one, tribes of Israel, two, Shechem, which is located right here, right in between. So he gathers them where they're no longer here or here, they're in between. Presents them before the Lord, then he goes through. First part of chapter twenty four is basically a an account of God's faithfulness to Israel. I have done this. I brought you out of Egypt. I did this. I did this. You go through and circle all the I pronouns and they're all over the place. Um, Then you get to verse 14. Now, therefore, based on God's faithfulness to you, you have an option. They're no longer over here and over here, which is the way they were the first two times. Now they're right in the middle. The implication is, You've got to decide. Are you going to obey the law and be blessed, or are you going to disobey and be cursed? And the context is um, this is right on the hills of. um, I can't remember the guy's name. This is right on the hills of idolatry. Uh, Israel was basically steeped in idolatry, they brought gods from the past. They every time they conquered a culture, there was a temptation to take their gods, and then they also have gods that they're making on their own. So I mean, this is uh, Israel is is plagued with idolatry. And what Joshua is saying is, you have a choice: you can have your idols, or you can choose the Lord. You can't have both. You have to make a choice. Um, <clears throat> And so he says, therefore, verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. The implication is you haven't been doing that because you have idols. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to be right here. Joshua and his family is going to be up here. Um, then he goes on. The people respond, We will do this. We will put away our idols. And Joshua just keeps challenging them. Look at verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is jealous. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. We will do it. Then he goes on to say in verse 23, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you. Choose this day whom you will serve. Don't we get that same message, similar message in the New Testament? 1 John 5.21. Uh, 5, 1 John 5.21. Um, keep ourselves pure from idols. We have different idols, though. In our culture, we don't have. Sometimes we have physical objects, too, but, um, but we have idols. So, I mean, we're all in this situation. We're all in the middle here. And, and, and by application to us, we have to make a decision. Are we going to worship the idols? Could be anger towards somebody? You going to hold on to that idol because you're right. Um, we all have our idols. Um, so, Joshua, do you all see how that one verse we often just know because it's up on a plaque on the wall? but when you actually look at the context, it changes the meaning. I mean, it's not like it radically changes it. It gives it more meaning. It, it really gives you the, the what is Joshua talking about? So we need to know, and this, um, you'd have no clue if you didn't, weren't familiar with geography or historical setting, or you didn't do cross-references. What, what's the significance of this mountain? Um, so this is an example of where geography makes, <laughs> Geography is important also if you're going to study the book of Acts. I mean, I'm just giving you some obvious ones. Um, you might want to be familiar with Paul's missionary journeys if you're going to study the book of Acts. Um, so geography, the culture. I need to hurry because I'm running out of time. Biblical culture. The Gospels um, were written um, in a context. and We need to know things like who were the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Um, who were the Essenes? I mean, all these little religious sects that were important in that day who were they? I mean, that's important for understanding the Gospels. The The point is, the more you know about biblical culture, the easier it is for you to take your glasses off. Well, essentially, that's what you're doing. The more you learn about the biblical culture, you're putting on their glasses. Um, you need to know in the Gospels something of the Jewish legal system. What was the function of the Sanhedrin when Jesus was crucified? Who are the Sanhedrin? These are things you need to know from that cultural setting that we don't know unless we study it. You can read all day long in the Bible about the Sanhedrin. You may not have a good idea of what their role was under Roman rule. Um, what are the marriage rites or rituals? What does it mean to be betrothed? It's important if you want to understand the story of Mary and Joseph. Yeah. thought I got messed up there. Uh what were the Jewish expectations of the Messiah? Again, it's important to know. All these things add to helping you take off your glasses and put on the biblical cultural lens. Um, many of the New Testament epistles were written to combat, to a large degree, heresy. We need to know what those heresies were. Um, every book of the Bible was written in a particular context. There's some a lot of overlap but they each have their own unique setting, and we need to be familiar with those settings. And this is where, by the way, I've been meaning to do this. Um, you need to get a couple of books, you don't have to spend a fortune, a good Bible atlas, um, some books on backgrounds. Everett Ferguson um, wrote backgrounds to early Christianity. This talks about the religious sects and the culture, Only, not only in Palestine or the Israel or Jewish background, but also the the Greek, and Roman background because those played an important role in the early Christianity because they were, Christianity was basically birthed under Roman rule with heavily influenced by Greek uh, culture. Um, Thirdly, there are contextual gaps. Texts are not only set in a particular historical situation, they are also occur within a particular or specific situation themselves and that's kind of what i was alluding to Um, you've heard dan say context is what context is king slightly disagree with that but um i agree with the sentiment no i'm just kidding uh context is king if you're interpreting if you're kneeling before god (laughs) jesus is king but i'll let you make that choice uh, context is king if you're interpreting, and uh, you've heard often probably that a text without a context is a pretext. Yeah, so we have to know context. There are basically some things uh, we need to think about. Um, you can take anything out. Of, you can take any phrase out of Scripture and take it out of context and make it mean something completely different. For example, did y'all know the Bible says there is no God? It does. Psalm 14, 1. there is no God. Um, I didn't tell you the context. That's a fool that says that, but the Bible does say that. Um, Satan quotes Psalm 91.11 in Matthew four six, and he uses it seemingly appropriately. This is the temptation, and Satan says, you know, if you are God's son, throw yourself down, and the angels will save you. Um, Psalm Psalm 91 is about the Messiah, and God protects those who trust him, seemingly using that passage right. However, he fails to communicate it accurately or the real understanding because he doesn't understand the context. And when he, the very fact of Jesus tempting God would show or display a lack of trust. And the whole meaning of that psalm is that God protects those who trust him. So, he undermines the real meaning of the passage, even though he uses the words of the passage. Um, so, what types of context are there? Yeah, context. The context of any verse is, first of all, the entire scriptures. This is back to scripture, interpret scripture. So, if there's a passage that is less clear or more ambiguous, we don't use that passage to build major doctrines. Um, one of the problems in interpreting Hebrews 6, y'all remember that, where it seems to plainly say you can lose your salvation. Um, one of the problems with interpreting that is what? What do we know about Hebrews? Do we know who wrote it? Do we know who it's written to? We don't know any of the context for the letter. makes it a little more challenging. So what we do in that situation is there are clear passages that say you cannot lose your salvation. Therefore, since we don't know the full context of Hebrews, we assume that that does not mean that specifically. I mean, there's other ways you can, we can look at uh, Hebrews 6 and, and determine come to that conc- same conclusion a different way. But, um, but a verse's context is the entire scripture. Secondly, a context of any verse is the particular book in which it's written. So, now we're narrowing it. If you're going to look at any verse, you have to know the book. You have to know the overall message if you want to faithfully interpret a verse. That's why I would highly recommend that you read at least portions of Scripture, but if not entire books at a time. Um, Because, again, meaning... For the same words can shift a little bit. I'm not saying totally change, but shift a little bit depending on the context of the book. Every letter in the New Testament, the author's writing it, he's building an argument, and you need to know the whole flow of the argument to faithfully interpret passages. Now, this is not true in every case. I'm telling you, like in passages that where you tend to that are harder to interpret, you need to understand the entire book. Um, context of any verse is are the verses before and after it we need to know what the verses say before and after it what is the section or the paragraph that that verse is in what does that paragraph say so we have units of meaning you have words and that words we get in a lot of trouble because words have a there's a range of meaning there words or the meaning of a word is dictated by the sentence so the sentence would be the basic unit of thought, and then you have paragraphs, whole books, or whatever. So, um, so a couple of of verses that are taken out of context. But let me ask y'all, what are some of the major verses that are taken out of context? Yes, ma'am. Yes, Is that Matthew eighteen twenty, where two or three are gathered together. Mike, what's the context? Church discipline. Yeah, we normally don't hear it that way, do we? Um. Yeah. Uh. Well, another one. If my will yeah. 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 So, the from the Old Testament, if my people will humble themselves and will seek my face, then I will. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Then I will heal heal their land. It's a promise given to Israel. It's not to the church. Um. God is under no obligation, regardless of whether we humble ourselves, to heal our nation. Because we're not Israel. Um, Yeah. Another one. Don't judge lest you be judged. Which in context is about judgment. Right? Don't cast your pearl before swine. You have to make a judgment call there, don't you? You're judging someone to be swine. (laughs) Uh, What uh, other ones? I have my personal favorite, but I'll save it. now what was that with from one. Yeah yeah No no that's that's sure I think that's right Yeah 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 so there's there there obviously there are things we can glean from these verses I'm not trying to say that you can't look at a verse and and apply make application from these verses but in order to do that faithfully you have to know what it meant and what are the what's the context and we'll talk about that. My personal favorite is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And and my favorite was, um, goodness, I hope I'm not stepping on anybody's toes. Uh, I saw this on a, um, I saw this, this person who built a poster for their work, and it was basically if they sold a certain amount of product, they would win prizes like a car or something like that. And so they were encouraged to make posters to kind of motivate them to sell. And, and this particular poster that I saw had Philippians 4.13. And the interpretation or the application of that verse was, I can, I can sell this many cars or I can sell this much product so I can win this car. Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not the context of that. Paul's saying, I can be, I can be starving and be content. Paul was saying, I can be content regardless of my circumstances. I can be poor, be happy. Or I can be rich and be happy. Um, that's context. So context is important if we want to know the true meaning of any passage, and, um, and we are out of time. Last gap, which will um, next week I won't be here, but Brent is going to fill in for me, and he's going to basically expand on the last gap, the genre gap. The faithful interpreter of, uh, is a student of biblical genres because um, genre basically is is French for type or kind. What kind of literature are we looking at? Um, if it's and we do this automatically, you don't read the newspaper the same way you read your wife's love letter. Hopefully, um, so there we we take into consideration what kind of writing is this, and so. Uh, Next week, we'll look at some of the major different kinds of writing that influence how we should interpret that that passage. Um, and again, these are all things that we automatically do in our culture. The problem is when it comes to the Bible, we're, we are removed from it, and so we need a little bit of extra work. However, um, we have good English translations. Um, we need to use them, and there's other resources, you know, but use... Um, Bible dictionaries to look up words, um, and historical backgrounds types of things. Commentaries are great for this um, because they give you the context of a particular book. Um, But before you jump into just reading the commentary on the actual interpretation, I would suggest that you read through the book yourself and, and try to figure out what it means without looking at the commentary. Then you go to the commentary and check yourself. But Um, But at the beginning of every commentary, they give the historical setting, the context, and that's very helpful. Those are things that, areas that we can be better students, and it'll just help us. And the more you do this, the more it's automatic, the less you'll have to rely on actually doing a lot of research for stuff. Um, But basically what we're doing is we're taking our glasses off and we're putting on the glasses of the biblical writers and the recipients of those, Um, because that's our goal. We want to be faithful with the text. Um, the majority of the Bible is very easy to understand. I, I'm not in any way insinuating that this is difficult because it's not. It does take a little bit of effort, though, and, uh, and that should be our goal. So let's, uh, if there are any quick questions, because I'm, I'm past time. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that you uh, again chose to communicate to us in a way that we could understand. Um, Father, I pray that you would help us to desire to be better students of your word. And uh, Father, I pray that you would help each of us to um, reveal to us this week as we look into your word, what are our cultural biases? Uh, What are the things that the assumptions that we have that we bring to the text um, that distort perhaps what what you're trying to tell us? And Father, I pray that you would do that so that we might better faithfully live for you. And, uh, Lord, ultimately our greatest hindrance to understanding your word is our sin and our unwillingness in many ways to obey your commandments. And so, Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts. May we be eager to obey your word because that is our ultimate goal, obedience to what you've communicated. Um, Lord, I just ask that you would bless us as we endeavor this week to know you more. I pray that you would help us to set aside time Every day to be in your word, to read it, meditate on it, to think about it, and to study it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.